Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Sprinkler Nerd Show. Today on the show, I have my good friend Kyle Desmaris on, and Kyle and I have known each other for probably about 10 years. We've worked closely together on numerous baseline control projects, both new construction and retrofits. And Kyle and I had a discussion a couple weeks ago. He called me looking for consultation on retrofitting a large site, and I said to Kyle, let's do this live on the podcast. And so today Today, Kyle and I are going to talk a little bit about how he started his business, and then we're going to jump right into going through the parts and pieces that are necessary to retrofit a large site that has 250 zones and 11 controllers with a pond that is the water supply with two pumps and a makeup well, and it's a, just a pretty technical site, and I thought it would be good value for all of you listening to just sort of hear how we tackle a large project retrofit. So without further ado, let's jump right in. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old-school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Kyle, welcome to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. So glad to have you on today. Thank you for having me, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I were catching up on the phone. You had called me a couple of weeks ago with a project opportunity that we were starting to scope out together. And if I recall, I said, Kyle, let's stop right here. We need to get together later and record this because we're going into some control technical details as we scope this project out. And I think that our audience would love to hear how we scope out a retrofit like you had. But before we get into that, I'd kind of like you to share who you are, where you're from, what you do, how you got started, um, all that good stuff. So uh, I got into the fields, I guess, when I was 13. My dad owned a nursery. It was The nursery was attached uh, to the house. He sold plants, shrubs, the whole, the whole nine yards, had a florist in there. And at 13, any, so any, any time I had off, he had me working, watering the trees, running around and, and, and just doing the miscellaneous things that a 13-year-old could do at the nursery. Uh, at the same time, he had a landscape company. Uh, I jumped into doing landscape probably right around 16, right when I could start to drive. Uh, threw me in a, in a mow crew and out the door I went. I worked all during the summers. I worked my vacations and usually on Saturdays for him. So after that, I, I, he always said, you know, I don't want you to get into the landscape industry. It's grueling. It's seven days a week. It's 24 hours a day. Uh, I don't want you to do that. So I went to school, studied marketing. I uh, went to Quinnipiac down in Connecticut, started advertising uh, as, a, as a, my number one, got out of school in 06 or 04, uh, went to Hill Holiday in Boston, worked for a year. And honestly, most of my lunches, I spent talking to the guys from now Brightview. They were Valley Crest then because I had no interest in what I was doing. I didn't want to sit at the table with the guys and talk uh, about, you know, who, who won the kickball game or, you know, what they were going to drink during the weekend. It was, you know, I, I had more, more in common with the guys that were laying brick in the city. 
And what was the name of that company? Hill Holiday. What is what is Hill Holiday? Hill Holiday is an advertising agency. Got it. So you were wearing leather shoes and pleated pants and polo shirts. Yes. And just uh, you know doing the corporate thing. Doing the corporate thing. And I and I honestly I hated it. I lived in the South Shore. It took a long time to get to Boston. It was an hour ride in, hour ride out, and that was without traffic. It just was. It just was not for me. So at the end of my first year, uh, I came back to my dad. I said, this is not for me. I tried it. You wanted me to, to go in a different direction than landscape, but I just keep coming back to this, to this uh, field. I went to work for him for a year running his irrigation division, which was really small. We, he, I think he had 70 clients at the time. It was a combination install and uh, service. So we service some systems in the morning, go out and do an install, and then you know service some systems in the afternoon. And, and that was it for the first year. That was 2005. And then in 06, I saw a niche. I saw that landscape companies were not really good at doing irrigation. They were slamming ahead in the ground. It was never, never done right. They were installing drip with sprays. And it just, it was, it was terrible. And my, and my dad was, he was one of the worst of it. And we saw it all over the place. So in 06, I decided to break off and start H2O Irrigation. And we've had tremendous success following the standards of irrigation. And here we are today. Awesome. And the standards meaning, I would say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of the simple things. Do the, the standards and the simple things correctly. So can you maybe just expand on, do you have like a top five list of the standard things that you find if you do correctly work for you? Oh, I wish I had a top five. That's a tough question. Well, you know, we could say sprays and rotors on different zones. Yeah, I guess matching precip rates, looking at the environment that you're installing a zone in and whether it's shade, full sun, and then watering correctly. It, the industry in itself, it overwaters just to keep clients happy. And I think that, you know, you can really dial the watering back and have a healthier plant than overwatering. How, uh, I love the name H2O, it's just because we live in the water industry. So it's a, it's an awesome name and I'll probably comes from your marketing and advertising background. And for those that can't see your logo, I would say go check out Kyle's website because I think your logo is pretty awesome too. How did you, do you remember how you came up with H2O Irrigation? Yes, yeah, so we were throwing a whole bunch of ideas around and as a family group. And it was actually my father who, who said, you got to think of it, think of what, you, what you're using. And uh, to come up with a name, and he said, "You're using water." And I said, "Well, H2O." He said, "Well, H2O irrigation—that's easy to remember. Probably pretty easy to throw on a logo." So that night, I threw threw together three or four logos. He kind of drafted up one that was way louder than I wanted to go. He had, you know, big wraps for trucks and stuff like that, and I wanted to keep it simple because our idea was, you know, the responsible use of water. Uh, was was kind of our motto, and I just wanted a, a simple logo, and that's where we we just we drafted up the the leaves with the single water drop, and often often running. That's great, and I uh, just had this sort of big picture thought with H two O irrigation. H two O is so great because you never know if you want to sell your business or acquire business or grow the business, you could have H two O plumbing. You could you could have different divisions of H two O where it may not be just irrigation in 15 years from now. So it's pretty cool, man. I, I really yeah, like your brand. That's true. So we, 
we we dove into drainage right away. Uh, I saw a need for for good drainage, and and people, you know, they looked at, at H two O as understanding how these guys know how to move water, and in, in the right direction. So that worked out really well. Uh, we do have a lighting division, which kind of gets a little funky with the H two O because they're like, why do you do lighting? And that's a that's a little bit of a explanation, but still works for us. Cool. Okay. Is there, before we jump into, you know, kind of this uh, particular project and getting into the nuts and bolts of, of scoping out the retrofit, is there anything in your current business or maybe things you've learned over the last, I guess, 15 years that you find make you successful and or drive more profitability for you? I would say my employees, we go through extensive training they are, they are the backbone of our company. If, if I didn't have what I have in the field every day, we wouldn't be able to push the numbers that we're pushing. So I would say solid training with the employees, treating them like family. And if you interviewed any one of them, they would probably say, I feel like I'm part of the family here at H2O. Awesome. That's great. What's your current uh, staff look like? So we're, we're at uh, 15 employees, one office uh, scheduler, a service manager, full-time. We have a controller full-time. We have two full-time technicians and two full-time install guys. And then the rest are uh, seasonal. Excellent. Got a nice little machine there that you have to keep fed. I like it. It is a nice little machine. And beating it, it's been really good because our website doesn't drive a lot of traffic. We haven't upgraded it since 2006. We don't do very much marketing. Everything is fed through the clients we have now. So we've been very fortunate with having to feed it. it kind of feeds itself. Excellent. Through word of mouth and referral. That's perfect. Yeah. Is there, I'm going to ask you one or two more questions. On a typical project, it could be residential or commercial, on a typical project, are there certain areas that you know you need to focus on to either maintain the profitability that you were hoping for or make the project more profitable for you? I would say driving the efficiencies through labor. That is always the one spot that you have full control over. Materials are materials. You're going to install what the consultants have put on a plan or what you've planned out to, to install on that project. So driving efficiencies through with labor has always been how we make our profit. Okay. I won't go too deep in there, but maybe sometime later we can uh, circle back up and, and record another show on just that because I'd love to know how you determine maybe labor hours up front and how you Make sure you're on track during the project and motivate your employees and, you know, all of that, because I think you're, you're right. We get a lot of feedback and you hear a lot of people and a lot of, let's call it white noise about trying to save 50 cents on a sprinkler and three cents on a fitting. And, and it's, it's almost like a lot of individuals focus on the wrong stuff, that white noise, instead of where the real profitability and opportunity is. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, well, if you think about time management, if you sit down at a computer and you and you pull a spreadsheet on every every supplier out there, and you and you're buying a sprinkler head here, and you're for ten cents less, and you're buying your pipe over here for you know a, a dollar less a foot or whatever it might be, that takes a lot of time. That time could be focused on 
on your efficiencies with your labor. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. So let's um, take a tangent here and get into the the nerdy nuts and bolts of this uh, project. And, and you may or may not want to mention it by name. Maybe we just won't mention it by name, but let's, um, let's just have you start out as if you had just called me. Hey, Andy, I've got this project. Here's what it looks like. Help me figure out how we, how we can retrofit this and what we need to retrofit it. So the, we were called in that the system was installed in phases by a handful probably in the 15 range contractors. So, so over the course of time, this system was installed by 15 different contractors. I would say 15. Uh, wow. Yeah. So the, it's now that the association has been turned over to the board. Uh, they had a management company. The management company was using the last irrigation company that did the install. It was when I showed up there, I've never seen more of a, there was no plan. There was, it was just slapped together in pieces. Everyone used a different size pipe. There was no fluid movement. There was nothing by the management company that to control what was going in the ground. They just, they just wanted the low bid stick in the sprinkler system that worked. And it, and it just, it doesn't work for the association at this point. And this is year three for them. Uh, I met with them in 2018 for the initial consult. They've now, they went back to the, their, uh, the sprinkler company that they had there because of time and budget. And now they've grown their budget to a point where, and, and they know that they need to start making the appropriate movement forward in management to make this system right. So just to re, uh, restate, they have no uh, as-built plans, no record drawings of the hydraulic infrastructure, no details on number of sprinklers, locations of valve boxes. They, they have nothing. Is that right? Nothing. And uh, do you think that is fairly typical? I would say that this is, that's, that's a very typical uh, situation. Most of the properties that we go on to that we have not installed have nothing. So in 2008, they brought you in uh, for a consult. What was on their mind? Why did they bring you in to, for a consult? What was, what's, what was their pain? Their pain was, was the system. And so I, I went in, I met with the board. Uh, we went in and looked at all the different items that they had on the list. It was controllers. There was Rainbird controllers. There was Toro controllers. There was Hunter controllers. Uh, there was even a weathermatic controller. There was a controller inside a valve box being run by a multi-strand wire. A waterproof controller though, right? Definitely a waterproof controller. It was, uh, it was a waterproof controller, but... I'm joking. Really? When it sits in a valve box, you know how that looks. That, that, had, that, had, that was no longer working, uh, which, which was feeding a good section of the association. So we looked at all these items and I said, you, you know, we, we need to focus on your foundation. When you build a house, you build the foundation first and your foundation is your water source. Their water source is a uh, reclaimed water pond. Uh, it holds somewhere around 65,000 gallons of water. At the time, they thought it was just fed by reclaimed water. 
with a little bit of research, found a pump start relay. I also found a controller that ran the pump start relay, which had uh, multiple settings. So the pump would run 24 hours a day, which refilled the pond. At the time, I didn't, I didn't have complete understanding of the pond, but I do now. The pond had a, has a drain. So it gets to a certain level and it would drain the water out anyway. So even though they were pumping water in, it was draining out. The pond can only hold uh, that 65,000 gallons. Anything, anything more than that leached out into uh, the wetlands. So if that well were to be kicked on by the controller, in theory, the well could run 24 hours a day and it fills the pond and it just is spilling over. So a, a tremendous amount of lost water and energy, it just, it was not making sense to me in my head. So that's, I dove into the source. The source itself was completely overgrown. I said, number one, we need to go in and kill out all the vegetation, clean the banks back so that you can hold as much water as possible before we get to the spill level. That was number one. Number two, the pond feeds two separate main lines, feeds the north part of the campus and the south part. And I said, you know, we need to, we need to look into how much water each south and north is, is going to need. And with, with some calculations, we figured out that we were going to draw down about a foot to a foot and a half on every watering. And that's watering the entire complex. And then tell me more about the two main lines. Is there one pump pulling out that it splits to two main lines or is there two pumps coming out? We have two separate pumps feeding two separate main lines. Again, uh, different contractors, two different types of pumps, both on uh, relays, which were synced up with the timing that the system would run. So they, they build in a block knowing what was going to run out in the field and that pump would then run. And so you have a, a two inch feed for the south and a two and a half inch feed for the north. Uh, now tell me about the controller locations and where they're located relative to these two different main lines. So the, the nice part of the control, they have an irrigation shed. They now, at, at this point, I took the recommendation in 2018. They got rid of the pump start relays. They went to a pressure system with two drives to eliminate the problem of, of scheduling. If you change a schedule on one of the controllers, you'd have to go back and change the schedule for the uh, pump start relay. And uh, that was a complete nightmare. I see, because the fill was set up on a day of the week relative to how the, the demand is on the controller. So it wasn't a on-demand system. It was set on a schedule to refill. So now they did do some, uh, some upgrades in between us coming back in at this point. They have a drive that's, that's now running those pumps. So we are back, but we're on an on-demand scenario. So both pumps that feed each main line, those are pressure activated. Okay. And then, and is the well pump also pressure activated? The well pump is not pressure activated. That is still on a drive. So the well is set to fill the pond on a schedule? Correct. And then how many total zones are on this property? So there's 11 controllers. I estimated somewhere around 240 to 250 zones. 
Okay. We'll just say 250 to keep the number around. Okay. And of those 11 controllers, how many are on the north main line? There is six on the north and there's five on the south. And then how do these zones break out in terms of quantity between north and south? That is a good question. I didn't dive into what they had. It's almost a 50-50 split, except that there is a large common area on the north side of the campus that has its own controller. You know, there's a pool, big green, and that is where that extra controller, I think, came into the mix. Okay. And the reason I'm asking is because specific to a baseline controller, base station 3200, the max zone count is 200. So are you over 200 on the north or is it split, like you said, at like 125 each? Yeah, I would say it's about 125 each, uh, maybe maybe 100, 100 on the south, 150 on the north. Sure. Okay. And what we would do, so in this case, it, it's less complicated if you if you had over 200 zones on one main line that's when you would be introducing a second controller because you've maxed out the station count and when you introduce that second controller you now have one water you would have one water source two controllers and so that's when you would also need to add what's called the flow station to manage that single water source across both of those controllers totally possible i'm not going to say it's easy but in theory, it's easy and we can help you set it up. But in this case, it's not required. What we will have is one controller for the north main line, one controller for the south main line. And then because you have six existing controllers, my recommendation would be to pick one of them. Could be any of them. I would probably choose one that's in the most ideal location to visit as a, you know, for your service tech and for the operator. And that location is where you'll locate the actual controller. So of the six on the north, we'll turn one of those into the base station 3200. And then the other five locations, we will convert to substations. Right. And a substation, just so that our audience knows these, these, terminolo- this, these terms, because it's gonna be likely new for most of you listening, a substation, takes commands from the base station 3200 and and activates those those zones and so it doesn't have a programmable interface for runtime start times days of the week the interface is there to connect it to the base station 3200 and once connected the zones on the substation become essentially wireless zones that are activated from the 3200 so we'll take one location make it the 3200. The other five will be substations based on zone count. You could have a 12 station, substation, 24, 36, 48, et cetera. And then we'll connect that grouping, the one controller with five substations, we'll connect those together in the cloud. And so right inside base manager, we'll connect those together. Each of the control boxes will have a a cellular modem or, or a connection to the internet somehow. And we'll make that connection in what we at Baseline call the IoT cloud. And that way we can retrofit all those six controllers, making it one irrigation system for the north and not six different systems. Does that make sense? From a management side of things, it just will make life so much easier for whoever's managing this property after the retrofit. Yeah, that now they have six controllers that 
are all competing for the same hydraulic source. So they've got to run some scheduling math, which they're likely not doing. <laughs> and so they probably have zones competing for water at different times of the day. And instead, we'll be able to share one flow sensor across all six of those different existing controllers because we're making it one irrigation system, one controller. Each of those substations also has a two-wire port. So at, at any of those existing locations, they're expandable up to the maximum of that 200 zone count. And then we can also have you connect your flow sensor and master valve or pressure sensor if you want to add and, and make it one large irrigation system for the north and then another irrigation system for the south main line. And the nice part about this project is there is no two-wire out there. So in my thoughts, when it comes to cost, the retrofit without having to add decoders in, it's, it's certainly uh, cost effective. And so it's on the north side, we have a two and a half inch main line. So based on uh, there were the flow requirements. We can look later at whether we want to use a two-inch flow sensor or a three-inch flow sensor. On the south side, we have a two-inch. Do you think, uh, well, let me ask you this, where that well or the pump is that pumps out of the pond for both the north and the south, is there a controller nearby? There is. They built a shed to house the pond refill controller and the drives. So right there next to the pond, I think would be the ideal location for the second controller. 3,200 with four substations. Or, or uh, locations there is a house? Yes. Perfect. So I, I think I would make those locations, you may have just said this, make those locations the, the controller, the base station 3,200. Yes. You know, that way it's right at the source. You know where it is. It's, it's inside. Um, you can easily hook your flow sensor up to it. You may also add a pressure sensor. So if for some reason one of the wells is not producing you'll know the reason for, let's say, a low hydraulic alarm, you know, or a low flow alarm or a high flow alarm. So I'd probably recommend adding a pressure sensor for each location as well. So good. That'll square away the north side, the south side. That'll take care of all of the irrigated zones, all 250 zones. We'll, have, we'll turn that into two control systems. Let's talk about the well that feeds the pond because you said currently it's running on a schedule. There's probably, like you said, an irrigation controller with a pump start relay that kicks it on and it fills the, the pond. Is that something that you think the HOA would like to automate as well? So I think that's something they need to automate, you know, especially with the fact that they're pumping good usable water for the irrigation system into a pond that's just draining out into the wetlands. Uh, so at that point, I think you need to understand what your flow is coming from the well how many gallons you're pumping into the pond. And then not only that, but also understand your pond heights. Yeah, and there's a couple different ways we could automate this and in connection with both controllers. So you had mentioned a drawdown of 12 inches. What happens if the pond goes below 12 inches? You still have water available. That's basically what we had figured a, a run would draw down. So there's still water there. Uh, there's about three feet of water before you get to a, a level where you probably are going to have to go into shutdown mode and allow either well to refill the pond or hopefully you get some sort of storm that uh, refills the pond itself. Okay. So I think, let's see, here's what I would suggest. We're going to have two controllers on site. And is either one of these controllers closer to the well? Yes, the well is, is within 50 yards of the pond. 
the south controller would be closer south controller yep about 20 25 yards from the south controller so what what i'm going to suggest is we're going to use the south controller also as your pond management controller that's even a thing. I may have just invented that term. <laughs> Your like pond, pond management controller. We can use either a third-party float switch device or a pressure transducer or a baseline soil moisture sensor installed or mounted in the pond so that when the water level drops to that 12-inch threshold, we can automatically activate the well and start that refill process. Correct. And I think we could also automate the shutoff, but I think we should, we don't have to run the math right now, but we would turn the well on for a certain period of time. So let's say four hours or however long we estimate based on that flow it takes to raise the pond 12 inches again, or maybe just eight inches. That way we have some room if it's going to rain, et cetera, that we're not keeping it like exactly full. So every time the, the pond dips to that 12 inch threshold, the well will come on automatically for a set period of time. Correct. So the nice part is, is we've done the math. We figured it was going to take six hours to refill the pond, the 12 inches. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. So we'll use, so I, you can decide later which, which of those three, you know, third party float switch, a pressure transducer, or a soil moisture sensor. And that can automate the, the well to kick on. The next step would be a safety, some kind of a safety mechanism. So if the well does not kick on and the pond continues to dry down, dry down, dry down, like you mentioned before, there probably is a point where we don't want to keep watering because the pond is going to be completely empty, that you could install another pressure transducer or soil moisture sensor you'd have to do it one for each of the controllers that's your low water shutoff so if the moisture sensor ever reached let's say dry because at that point it's be in the air if it was inserted in the pond you'll stop irrigation and that would be like your your safety override correct and i guess i don't know enough about the site to know whether that is even possible but 65,000 gallons isn't a ton of water really, at the end of the day. So it, it could, if that well was not running, you could likely run the pond dry pretty easily. You certainly could. Three days, you're in, you're in trouble without refill. And I didn't mention it, but the reason we can do that off of the base station 3200 is because the, the 3200 can handle multiple water sources, uh, multiple control points, multiple master valves, multiple flow sensors, up to eight. And so we'll just use another available master valve position to turn on that well in the automatic fashion. So as soon as it, as soon as it reaches the pressure set point or the moisture threshold or the circuit is open or closed, it'll kick that well on automatically. I'm trying to think if there's any other questions I should ask you. How is the cellular service on site so we we did do a a cell walkthrough using our phones and we had great service in the south campus the north at the far end so there would be one controller that may have an issue we had two bars so i'm, I'm guessing that we've used these cell modems quite a bit and we've we have some in some areas that are 
have had trouble signal, you know, two bars, and we've had not no issues, no drop. Um, so I would imagine that cell would be fine throughout the throughout the campus. Okay. So what we'll do, just this is sort of the um, cover your ass <laughs> statement, if you will. We'll we'll get you a cell test so you can go get the actual cell service at each location. And I say that because the service you're reading off of your phone is going to be different. The phone has um, various bands and frequencies and it can switch between uh, 5G, 4G, LTE, 3G without you even knowing necessarily. And so we'll want to test it with uh, the actual modem that you'll be using. And then we can get a good idea of the service. And I say that because only because you, you have a little bit of a gut instinct that there might be a location that's not so good. I do. So I think we should just go ahead and test it. And that way you have a decent idea on serviceability. And the last thing we want is for you to buy all this equipment, put it in, and then it's not working quite right. And then the customer's like, Kyle, what the heck? And you're like, yeah, I need an extra three, four grand. And they're like, why didn't you figure this out ahead of time? So we'll work with you on that. Yeah. Nobody likes you to come back and, and ask for some more money. <laughs> yeah. And we have both Verizon and AT&T. So it could be that one is better than the other. If you know in advance, we'll send you whichever test kit would be preferable. Okay. And then if there isn't cellular at one of these locations, I don't know if there's Wi-Fi, Ethernet, or maybe we'll have to put a lot like a a cellular hub in and come in with cellular at one of these other locations and then connect to the substation with an ethernet radio, which is likely possible too, if needed. And at that location, there, there's a, a bit of a hill and, and I would imagine that line of sight would be to one of the closer controllers would be pretty good. Okay. Very good. So just to recap, this site has 250 zones, had 11 controllers, it has a well that fills a pond. It has a north main line that pumps out of the pond. Then it has a separate south main line that pumps out of the out of the pond. And let's see, what year was this system first? When did they first build this out? I would say they probably started this system in 2009. Okay, so it's not terribly old. Gosh. It's not old. It was turned over to... The association in 17, property manager had was helping them with it. And then in 18, they let the property manager go and uh, manage it within the board. Right. And this would probably be huh, just a good example of hiring someone to do some master planning up front. If the HOA had done some master planning, they may not be in the position that they're in today. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I think it goes all the way back to the contractor. If the contractor reached out to a consultant or worked with an irrigation company that, that could come up with a master plan and, and build the entire site out correctly, uh, they would not. I mean, they may still have some of these issues because some things like this kind of turn up as the site gets developed. Uh, you realize you're using more water than you had and you find that you need something like this. But, but yes, if, if they had done it correctly at the beginning, I think they would have, and I think it goes back to the general, I think they would have been in a better, a better situation. Yep, because this is probably going to be just to use a round number, at least, you know, hundred thousand dollar retrofit with all these different controllers. It's very close, yeah. correct? Yeah, and and a and hundred thousand dollar retrofit with not a tremendous amount of hour labor hours. I mean, you're you're removing the controller, installing the controller. And there, um, there's going to be a little bit of back end when you get into base manager, 
to set everything up correctly. And, and then hopefully management after that is, is very simple. Well, hopefully once you put together your proposal, you may have already, they're excited and they see you as the, the value added contractor that's coming, coming in to rescue them. I hope so. We look at a lot of projects like this and we, we like to dive into to what they have and what the needs are and where we can take it. And, and unfortunately, in a, in a game of price, we are not always the, the less expensive company because we find the correct avenues that are going to meet all their needs, where somebody else may just say, hey, we can fix that with, with this, this cheap little fix and put a Band-Aid on it. And then in a year or two from now, they're, they're right back in the game saying, hey, we, we need to do something more. Yeah. You know, and it is so easy. You know, this is what it's going to take to do it correctly. You know, this is really what it's going to take. And if they brought in five other contractors, it's likely it's certain all five would do it for less, wouldn't actually even know what it would take to do it right. And so we have an uneducated HOA board. They're not irrigators. They don't understand how any of this stuff works. And so, yeah, it can be, it can be hard to sell because they're going to see five guys potentially all with less money, but saying it's the right solution, but they don't know any better. Right. And we, we try to do our due diligence and, and really dive in, give them all the information that they need so that they can make that right decision. And we always try to get in front of the board. You know, we just, we just sent this proposal off two weeks ago. We have scheduled a meeting for the middle of March in, in hopes to do the install prior to the season starting. So we're hopeful, once we get in front of the board and, they, and, and I think we can explain all the math, all the information we've piled in front of them, uh, that explanation will, will just hopefully guide them right into making the right decision so that they can move forward. Awesome. Well, if I can help you, don't hesitate to ask uh, either remotely uh, or in person. I will say that I am planning a trip to your neck of the woods the week of St. Patrick's Day. So like March 16th through the 19th, I may be around. So if there's an opportunity for us to go together and chat with the board, I'd be happy to. That would be great. It always helps to have the sprinkler nerd on, on your side. <laughs> Awesome, man. Actually, I, got, I, have a, I have one question I wanted to ask you, and this is off the tip of my tongue. At some point, I'd like to do more of like a, a final lightning round. I did it once before, but I'd like to ask you if there's anything in the landscape or irrigation industry that you've changed your mind about recently. Ooh, that I've changed my mind about. That's a great question, Andy. How about, um, is, there, is there anything you've stopped doing? Like, did you used to plow snow and now you don't? Did you used to offer service XYZ and now you don't? Did you used to focus on the cost of parts and now you don't? We, uh, we certainly, we dove into it last year. We looked at what our, our clientele was bringing in and what, what a commercial client brings in versus a residential client. And then we, we kind of red foldered our residential clients that were just using us for winterizations. And we've basically, we raised our pricing to kind of get rid of that lower end client so that you don't have to, we, we're obviously in a, in a situation where there's not a lot of labor out there and training 
a technician to do what he needs to do correctly every day takes a tremendous amount of cost and, and energy. So reducing the client list and increasing the margins was something that we, we just did last year and we found, we found it to be amazing. Again, going back to time management, looking at how many hours each technician can actually spend in the field, reducing their amount of calls. I love that. By getting rid of the, the clients that aren't, aren't spending is what we want them to spend down to a smaller number so that we can service our better clients better. That is awesome. So you've changed your mind about it's quality over quantity. Volume. Yeah, we definitely have changed our mind about volume. And, and finding your customers that are the best fit for you. I mean, if they're not willing to stick around when you raise your price by X percent, you know what? They probably weren't your ideal customer. Yeah, they were, they were someone who's probably shopping you every year anyway. And then making the final call at the, at, you know, when they needed something because they're already on, on our list and saying, hey, I need this now. And then, you know, they're probably the same client that calls in and talks to the controller and says, hey, you know, I, I got charged for a sprinkler head and I don't think it was broken. And that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a nightmare. Yeah. Awesome. That is great. Love it. Well, I think that'll wrap it up, Kyle. Thanks so much, man. This was a great, great time chatting and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Cool. Have a great day. You too, Andy. Take care. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up today's episode. I hope you found that valuable, and I hope that you look at your existing customers, your existing clients, existing sites and projects, and think about them as new revenue opportunities. It seems so often that we all look to compete with new installation projects and essentially every irrigation system that is out there today will need to be retrofitted and technology that is available today did not exist three, four, five, and 10 years ago. And so there's never been a better time to upgrade existing systems. If you'd like to learn more about the Sprinkler Nerd show, you can visit sprinklernerd.com and you can find all the links to our social media profiles. And if you'd like to look us up on Facebook, we have a closed private group just for professionals. And this is a place where you can share your own ideas, learn from others, update pictures, and a place where we can communicate together in an open and friendly and professional environment. So head on over to Facebook, search for Sprinkler Nerd, and knock on the closed door, fill out a quick questionnaire, and you'll be in, and we can communicate together there. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can also email me. My email is andy at sprinklernerd.com. Feel free to ask me anything. I am totally open to sharing with you and would love to hear from you. So until the next episode, happy sprinkling, and we'll talk to you then.